0: God is great. He's the reason why we're singing and worshiping and opening up the Bible to be stricken with His greatness again through Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to pray here before we open up the book and ask for God's greatness to be revealed through the Scriptures by His Spirit. Would you pray with me? God, You're great. You're matchless. Who could stand before you? You're holy, preeminent, before and after time. You spoke the world into being. You created it with your breath. You breathe life in Adam. By your spirit, you breathe life into us. Revive our souls. Restore our souls. So as to conform into the image of Christ. Use your word. Great is our God. Bless us this morning. Father, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, I'd like to uh, start off with a picture. Not like me, but there it is. There's the picture. You might have seen this picture before. It's a uh, a picture of uh, the Last Supper painted by Leonardo da Vinci in uh, 1495 you look there at the picture, sorry if it's too uh, far away from you uh, out there, but if you look at the picture, Jesus is, is there in the middle. Um, those are the disciples around him. It's a gorgeous picture, a famous one, um, and Leonardo da Vinci did not just paint it um, for its beauty to be marvel-overed, mar- marvel-overed but also uh, Leonardo, in, in painting this uh, picture, also purposefully um, painted the faces of the disciples and also their bodily expressions to include various aspects and details of the gospel accounts in the scriptures. And so if you get up close to it, uh, this picture is actually very deep and conveys much meaning. It's actually one of the most well-known historical pieces from the Renaissance age. And uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I see a picture of art like this or hear certain types of things from church history, such as creeds, or catechisms, or historical facts and data, I'm able to appreciate them in one sense, but in another sense, maybe it's just because I'm a pragmatist, I'm constantly asking myself, is this relevant? And if so, how does it affect me? Uh, You see, the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. communion, which is the meal portrayed in this picture, is something that has been practiced by the church throughout the ages. In fact, it is something that ever since the first church gathered in the book of Acts, has been at the center of its gathering and worship. Actually, two things were at the the center stage of worship in the early church. Number one, preaching of God's word. And number two, the Lord's Supper. Recognizing this, celebrating the Lord in worship over the elements. You see, most people, especially Christians, know that communion is, is something really important to the church, But they struggle to understand the relevance of this foundational faith practice to their daily lives. And so why did Jesus institute the Lord's Supper and give it to the church? How has the Lord's Supper lasted the testing of time? And in what ways does it affect and or influence our faith in practically as we walk with Jesus? These are just some of the questions that we're going to seek to answer from this text this morning. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 verses 12 through 25 are the verses we're going to, to focus on. And if you look there up at the screens again, you'll see that I titled this sermon, The Relevance of Communion in the Church. Here's a quick disclaimer before we uh, endeavor into the subject. There is no way that I can possibly conclusively teach on this subject in a spam of 30 minutes. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the scripture and just look at, highlight some of the foundational elements of the Lord's Supper as a starting ground, a starting block. So as, um, as the Lord can sparks your um, interest in it, maybe you can then use this to go on to study it more in detail. Three things I'd like to show you about the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. communion, from this text this morning are this. Number one, the Lord's Supper reveals God's sovereignty. Number two, the Lord's Supper encourages introspection, a searching within. And number three, communion, the Lord's Supper promises life. It reveals God's sovereignty It encourages introspection, and it promises life. We're going to begin our time together by reading the story up front again. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, to Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and And said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, and it is written, of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given things, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Right now we're moving to point number 1. I'd like to show you how the Lord's Supper reveals the sovereignty of God. Well, as we begin our time together this morning, I'd like to begin by reminding you of where we are in this book. We're so close to the end, we're in chapter 14 now. And uh, chapter 14 here marks the beginning of the passion narrative. The passion of Christ is Jesus' journey to the cross and the events leading up to the crucifixion. And as Mark opens up the scene for us, he begins by saying that this story here began in the first day of unleavened bread. The first day of unleavened bread marked the start of a holiday called Passover. Probably, as many of you know, this holiday called Passover is celebrated celebrated by the Jewish people in order to commemorate God's faithfulness to Israel in the Old Testament when he delivered Israel out of bondage and slavery from Egypt. And so here's what happened, just to refresh your minds on the story. In the book of Exodus, when the Israelite people were being held captive by Pharaoh, God sent a number of plagues on uh, on Egypt in order to get Pharaoh to let his people go. But Pharaoh, despite the many plagues that God sent, remained stubborn until the last one, the 10th one, which is the most popular one, the famous plague. It's known as the plague of death. It was when the Lord sent the angel of death to kill all of the firstborn sons in Egypt. Before this happened, before he did that, God took Moses aside and said, hey, Moses, here's what's going to happen And then he gave him uh, specific instructions in order for God's people, Israel, Moses' people, to be safe from it. And the instruction, the specific instruction for them to be safe was to sacrifice a lamb. And then take the blood of the lamb and smear it all over the doorposts of the homes. So that night when the angel of death arrived, he would know what houses to pass over. And so that's what happened. That night, God's people, whose doorposts were were covered by the blood of the lamb, were passed over and they lived. When the angel of death arrived, all the Egyptian firstborn sons were killed, but God's people were preserved. This is what ultimately led Pharaoh to letting God's people go. And so this here is what Jesus and his disciples were getting ready to celebrate, the Passover meal. And in Exodus chapter 12, when God was giving Moses further instructions on how to celebrate this one event through the meal, in verse 15, he said to Moses, for seven days you shall not eat unleavened bread. If you look there in verse 1, Jesus and his disciples here are on day one of the Passover. Mark says that it was the first day of unleavened bread. And so, After they sacrificed the lamb, according to the custom, they prepared to eat. And the disciples in verse 12 come to Jesus and say, Jesus, where will you have us go to prepare the meal? And Jesus says, go into the city. The city that he's referring to here is Jerusalem. And you'll see a man carrying a jar of water. He'll meet you. I want you to follow him. It's important to know here that Jerusalem during this Passover week would have been packed. According to Jewish law, the Jews were only able to celebrate this holiday within the city limits. Um, one well, well-known historian named Josephus actually said about this week during his time that there were close to two and a half million people in the city um, at that moment. This is most likely why Jesus gives this description of the man carrying a jar of water. Because during this time, men did not carry jars of water. That uh, uh, activity was only reserved for women and also some slaves. And so in order for this man to be distinguished amongst the crowds, as his disciples went in to follow the orders, they could recognize him. And if you look there at Jesus' marching orders, once the two disciples went on up into the city to listen to Jesus Everything that Jesus said was going to happen happened. Verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. I'm not sure if this story here rings a bell for you or not, but this description here is almost exactly what we saw in chapter 11 when Jesus prepared to ride into the city on the donkey. Do you remember? Jesus sent two disciples up on head of him into the city to find for him a donkey to ride on. He said to them, if anyone asks you why you're taking the donkey, tell them that the master needed it. And there he will be unmounted, tied to a post. And so the two disciples by faith went in. They found the donkey and they were asked by the people why they were taking it. And the disciples said the master needed it and all the people let them take it. Same situation here. In fact, this event here in chapter 14 and the one found in chapter 11 are so similar that they share a string of 11 consecutive words in common. In both passages, Jesus sends two disciples on covert errands that must be completed for events to proceed. Both errands entail mysterious meetings and specific details, and both transpire exactly as Christ predicted. And so what is Mark trying to teach us with all of this? or even better, because this is the second time around, I ask, what is Mark trying to remind us of? The answer, the sovereignty of God. One commentator named James Edwards, I've been using him a lot lately, said this, the effect of both stories is to sow Jesus' knowledge and complete governance of events as his hour of death approaches. Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. There is no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility on his part. Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout the gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. Judas and others may act against him, but they do not act upon him. You see, Mark here, once again, is reminding us of the sovereign plan and control of God. Jesus is the one here who is in control of the building passion narrative. Jesus is the one who not only foreknows, but foreordains the future and its preceding events. Why would Mark, in such a similar style to the way that he wrote in chapter 11, almost verbatim, teach us the same lesson again? Because things are about to get Really, really bad. And from an outside perspective, we're going to look as if Jesus is losing control, especially in light of Judas' conspiring with religious men to betray him. In the, the verses before, in verses uh, 10 through 11, it's going to look like Jesus, like there's a chance that Jesus might be suppressed or surprised or powerless, thus overtook. And so if we don't keep this in mind, God's sovereign plan which is the same plan that he's had ever since the beginning of time, indeed before time, in Christ the Son for him to die on the cross and to be a sin sacrifice as a means of salvation to the world. If we don't keep this in mind, then we will be tempted to lose hope and confidence in God. But this is it. This is the gospel that Mark wants us to remember again as Christ approaches the cross, that God is sovereign, he is in control, he has a plan, and his plan cannot be thwarted by man. One man named R.C. Sproul said this, if God is not sovereign, then he is not God. R.C. Sproul is exactly right. You see, if we do not maintain a gospel mentality concerning the sovereignty of God and his plan in Christ, then when crisis strikes, we will be tempted to believe that there is something wrong and or at stake. But that is not the gospel at all. The gospel is that our God, Christ himself, is over and preeminent in all things. Which means he not only knows, but foreordains the future down to the smallest detail. Why is this so important for us to remember further? Because if all God does in heaven is respond to human free will without ordaining it, then he actually doesn't have all control. Then all he's doing up there in heaven is moment by moment seeking to figure things out as they go. And that causes anxiety. And if we take upon ourselves this faulty view of God in this fallen and broken world where things hardly ever go right or perfect for us, where suffering is prominent in all of our lives in one shape or another, And all we will do is fear, despair, worry, be anxious, hopeless, powerless, uncertain, and many other things that threaten our souls and our ability to rest in Christ. See, this is what tragedy seeks to do to us and how Satan seeks to use it. He seeks in it to make us lose sight of the sovereignty of God, which causes us to doubt, worry, and or fold. But this is why God has given to us his word so we can keep our eyes fixed on the Savior and trust in the one who has displayed authority over life and death itself. The author and finisher of time, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who wrote the story of humanity before he set it in motion. Ever since the beginning of time, God had this one event, the crucifixion, the death of his son in mind, and everything that he planned to happen according to the scriptures happened down to the very detail. Therefore, in light of Christ and in light of our situations or the hard times that are coming, which might be nothing short than trabic, tragic, we must remember that God is God. That nothing surprises our God. That our God never grows anxious, that our God never worries, that he never has to guess how the situation might unfold or what might take place, that he is all-powerful, always in control. He knows the future and not only knows it but wrote it. He is the king of heaven seated on his throne. And he even uses small things like the jar of water in this random stranger's hand according to his sovereign plan for Jesus to be glorified. Did you know that not even a hair falls from your head, that God doesn't know? He knows the exact number of hair on you. He cares for you and is mindful of you. There is not a moment or a small detail or big moment that can be outside of his foreordained plan. And so if you're a Christian, no matter who, what, when, where, or why, and no matter whether or not you can feel it, sense it, or see it, The promise is that God is working out all things together for your good. Therefore, what's there to worry about? If God is for you, who can be against you? And so I ask you the applying question. What makes you fearful, fret, worried, or anxious? What types of circumstances or situations in your life tempt you to believe that God has lost control, thus you have to keep it? Renounce those lies. Let them go and be freed by the sovereign Savior, by the gospel of God. Those things, when you hold on to them, only make you decay. They keep you from flourishing and resting in green pastures. But the sovereign king wants to lay you down so you can sleep. Amen? That was point number one. We see here God's sovereignty as he sets up the table, even in the preceding events of it. Now as we get into it, I'd like to show you how Jesus uses communion to encourage introspection in us. Well, Jesus here and his disciples, after the house is ready, after dinner is prepared, they all together show up at the house. Everyone came and and sat down, reclined at the table. And in the midst of the celebration and commemoration of God's faithfulness, Jesus, in verse 18, looked at his disciples and said this. (laughs) Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And if you look there in the next verse, verse 19, as soon as he said this, all the disciples began to become sorrowful and asked Jesus, it is, uh, is it I? Other Bible translations uh, translate the phrase to, to say, Surely not I, but all of them are in the form of a question. And although Mark here doesn't answer who was dipping his hand into the bowl with Christ, from the other gospel accounts, we can be certain that it was Judas. We're going to get to that in a second. But the important thing that I want to show you here for us to recognize here in this scene is how the disciples were open to and also understanding of their own depravity. Through this question they ask, they acknowledge the the real possibility that it can be each one of them. They themselves could be the one that Christ was referring to. None of them, besides Peter here in this picture, denied this. In fact, Mark says that every one of them, in light of Jesus' words, grew in sorrow. The Greek word here is lupeo, which also can mean deep grief. In other contexts, this word is used to describe emotional pain, intense pain, pain to the point of childbirth. And so, in other words, the, the disciples here, in light of Jesus' presence and words at the table, one of you will betray me. Their hearts are broken. We, um, we sing this song here at our church every once in a while. It's called Come Thou Fountain. You probably know it if you sang it before here with us. There's a really famous line in the song. Um, it's actually repeated twice. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is what the disciples knew and understood about themselves at this table. That they were fallen, sinful, imperfect, and at times unfaithful men. Who loved Jesus, who honored Jesus, who followed Jesus, who desired Jesus, who walked with Jesus, had intimacy with Jesus, And experienced beautiful moments of grace, but all at the same time could not escape their fallen condition factor, which was that their hearts were prone to wander and leave the God they love. They felt it. Really, Jesus was talking about Judas here, but the disciples' question reveals their understanding of their own fickleness. And as supporting evidence to this position that I'm giving to you here in all the hearts of these men. Eventually, they're all going to be guilty of it. In the very next section, verse 27, Jesus said this You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And so, if Jesus was only talking about Judas here, but all the disciples understood this real possibility in themselves and actually fell into this, the question is is there a difference between them and Judas? The answer is yes. You see, although the disciples all eventually fell away from Christ, the main difference between them and Judas here over Christ's presence and words at the table is gospel guilt. You see, Jesus' words here cause these men to be introspective and actually come to terms with the weight of their sin. The possibility of their unfaithfulness and their own wretchedness. And so in the presence of your Savior, the, the one they love, their hearts broke. But Judas, his didn't. This is what the Lord suffers for in the presence of our Savior and also His Word, in contemplating His holiness and truth, that we are to come to terms with the fact that we are all prone to wander and have. And we do well if we follow this example of the disciples for the first time in this book, it being so beautiful to feel the weight of our sin and to have godly sorrow and grief for our hearts to ache in the presence of the Holy One. Jesus knew the disciples. He loved the disciples, fellowshiped with the disciples. And yet the disciples from this are going to go on to betray him. This is us. You see, this is what true and authentic Christians must all confess. That we are totally Unable to maintain right standing before God, no matter how hard we try. And that this truth of our depravity is what humbles us and moves us to get on our knees and repent. This is what non-believers and people who think they are Christians but are not can't do. I sat with this man this week on his deathbed. Really close friend of mine. For confidentiality's sake, I'll call him Bob. I was there with Bob. We were talking for a little bit. Um, and after some time, I asked a question. I said, Bob, why do you uh, think all this is happening to you? You've been struggling with sickness for, for years now. I've been watching it for three years, Bob. We've been best of friends. He said, James, I, I really don't know. Do you? I said, I believe I do, Bob. I said, I've been watching you for years. You're my best friend. I love you. Do you really want to know what I think? And he said, yes, James, tell me. And I said, Bob, I think God wants to wake you up and make you sense your real need for him. And he said, James, I am awake, and I, and I know that I need God. And I said, Bob, I'm afraid you don't. I said, Bob, when you die, and I hope it's not here in this hospital, but we all are going to die. And when you do die, when you meet your maker, and God says to you, Bob, why should I let you in? What are you going to say? You know what Bob said? He said, because I deserve it, I'm a good person. I said, Bob, you're not You're not a good person, Bob. There's only one who is good, Bob. I said, Bob, your works cannot merit God's love. And so for the next 30 minutes, we opened up to the Ten Commandments. I walked him through every single one of them in depth, as Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5, to ask him the question if he's added up to each of the ten every time he confessed that he hadn't. But still, at the end of the conversation, still no, no godly sorrow or gospel grief. Still no coming to terms with the weight of his sin and his inability to earn God's favor. You see, this is why we celebrate communion the way that we do. And get up out of our seats as a visual aid to express our faith proclamation. Which is, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we need a Savior desperately to carry the weight of our sin and indeed further to take it away from us. A public confession is what we boast in during the supper. That's what makes it strong. A corporate meal and i've said it times again and i'm going i'm just going to say i'm going to just keep saying it um, i want you to know that godly sorrow and gospel grief That leads to repentance is one of the greatest gifts of the gospel. Why? Because it is the only way, the prerequisite to truly embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the starting place. If you don't know the weight of your sin and the the, the depths of your depravity as a person, you can never truly understand the infinite perfection and substitution and atonement of the cross. Christ's death for you and how powerful and necessary it is for you. Top to bottom, head to feet, fingertip to fingertip. Your whole being needs the atonement. Of, of Christ. And so I ask you, not if you have fallen short of God's glory, but how have you fallen short of God's glory? Not if you have failed to be godly, but how, as of lately, have you been failing to be godly? How has your life proven that you truly have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the use of the law as a mirror to help us see ourselves Then turn to Jesus. You see, the unrighteous man or woman says, I'm good enough, I can make it on my own. But the holy man and, and righteous woman says, I have not all my deeds at last are all in vain. My good works before God are nothing but Dirty rags, I'm placing all of my faith in someone and something outside of me for righteousness, and there is only one who is righteous, and that is the Son of God himself. See, this is what Jesus' words and presence does for us at the table. It provokes in us deep introspection to understand us and the holy body and righteous blood of Christ. It's meant to lead us to repentance. Repentance is a good thing because it's a gospel thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. That was point number two, introspection. Thanks for hanging in there with me. I'd like to finish our time this morning with the best news and point of all, and that is the table is a table of life. There it is. Jesus is here in this final section having a a meal with his disciples just hours before his death. And uh, as they were in the midst of commemorating this Passover meal, what I want for us to see here, starting in verse 22, is how Jesus takes this meal and turns all of its attention and focus and places it, is on, and places it on himself. After giving thanks, Jesus took bread broken and said, this is my body. Then after that, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And so, In the context of this historical meal, which focused on the faithfulness of God to save his people through death, through the blood of a lamb, Jesus is now here pointing to himself and his own blood as a sign of the new covenant. You see, in the old covenant, God and his people were in relationship with one another. Each of them, both God and his people, had mutual responsibility to uphold it in faithfulness all throughout the Old Testament. We see nothing uh, but, uh, but God upholding his end of the deal. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see his people, Israel, failing to do so. And so in grace and mercy towards people in sin and depravity, the good news of the gospel is that God, in the New Testament, becomes a man, enters into this world to live a sinless life. In other words, what's new about the new covenant is that God comes and upholds our end of the deal through the sinless work and life of Christ, Through his sinless life and perfect death, we by faith in exchange are gifted with his status, forgiven and set free. In other words, Jesus here is shifting our attention from a blood-soaked cross or or, a doorpost to a blood-soaked cross. To remember and, and celebrate the grace of God. The zeal of God, the compassion of God, the love of God. For those who sinned and rebelled against him. You see, Jesus is the lamb who was slain. Death did not pass Christ, so death could pass you. Blood poured out from his side, so you would be covered in righteousness and cleansed from all of your sin. Guiltless, pardoned, not condemned, set free, adored by the Father, accepted by the Father, given the right status of Christ himself. Justification. God views you just as if. You are Christ. This is why we celebrate the meal the way we do and why those words there are written on the the table. This, do in remembrance of me. We're remembering the cross. Uh, But you see, if if, if communion was only about the cross, without the resurrection, it would not be a complete gospel meal. And so Jesus does what he does in verse 25. If you look there, he says this. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is doing two things here. He's pointing to his death and he's pointing to his resurrection to remind his disciples that death for him would not be final, that he would be risen from the dead by the power and spirit of God and one day as the son of man come back for his people in glory to eat of this meal again. And in Luke chapter 12, there's this beautiful specific description of this meal and how Christ himself Will dine with us. Jesus said this Blessed are those servants who the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He, the Master, will dress Himself for service and have them recline at the table, and He will come and serve them. This is why the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ is glorious. Mind-blowing and beautiful because Christ, at the second coming, in all of his power, dominion, and glory, thereto will have his eyes, love, and affection for us, and he will serve us. At the banquet feast, he's going to do it again. In other words, this table here is an appetizer of glory, a foretaste of glory. Christ himself, at the great banquet, is going to administer to us the supper you see, practically at the table, there's so much happening. We're looking backwards to remember the cross. We're looking forward to remember the second coming. We're looking upward to see our king and great high priest in glory. And we're looking out and about around us to see the one faith that the church so desperately clings to and finds hope in. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves alone. I um, really wanted to have communion this morning. Uh, we had it last week. Um, but we couldn't. Uh, because our denomination says I have to give you one week's notice, and uh, <laughs> and um, I didn't have a full week. I began writing the sermon on Monday. That would only been six days, and so to be an obedient pastor and honor our denomination, we didn't do it. But here's why I like that rule: because it shows us that we actually, as a people, take the Lord's Supper seriously. We want to give you proper time to prepare and ready your hearts to receive the means of grace and encounter the true and living spirit of God. So you got three weeks. Next month, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. I ask you, what's going to be different? Are you going to come more humble? Are you going to come more confidently? Are you going to come with more joy, with more celebration, with more repentance? as you ready your hearts even now over the next three weeks, would you ready your hearts by remembering these three things? God is sovereign. Babies cry. And the Lord is coming. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving your church. Thank you for giving us the means of grace. Baptism in the Lord's Supper to remember your faithfulness. The Lord's Supper is unique, God. We get to, we get to practice it over and over again and be encouraged and strengthened by you. So would you prepare us even now? Remind us of the gospel in this text. And may we, the next time we come up to receive the table, take it differently. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace and mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing in response.